who actually lived in that area. And uh, they had this large natural harbour. And it acted as a port of all sorts of goods that came into that place. And it was also uh, part of the Ignatian Way, which was one of the other major thoroughfares from east to west. So these guys are sitting smack bang in the middle of two of the biggest trade routes around the area. They were a free city which meant that they were able to mint their own coins and money and things like that. And uh, as a result, they were a very big commercial trade centre. And we know from last week that Paul, Timothy and Silas had preached there for a period of time. And during that period of time, uh, they were in the synagogue and then there were some believers who came to faith and they were Jews and God-fearing Greeks that actually gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we covered that in Acts 17. And we also heard last week that Paul and his co-workers had to leave earlier than they wanted to or they anticipated um, because simply people got jealous and wanted them out of the place. And Jason, who was one of the followers who'd come to faith, was forced to give an assurance that Paul and his crew would not preach anymore in uh, Thessalonica and he had to pay a surety, uh, a sum of money to ensure that that was the case. And so Paul moves on and in his absence he becomes concerned about what's going on with these new Christians uh, back in Thessalonica. And so he sends Timothy and he gets him to go and see how things are going and to report back to him. And Timothy comes back and he reports back to Paul and he writes part of this letter. They write this letter together as a result of what he hears. And as an overview of that report, the church is generally doing quite well. And as we proceed through 1 Thessalonians over the next few weeks, we'll see that there were a few things that needed to be addressed, and, and Paul does address these things, and he correct, makes some corrections as well. There was an issue of them not really knowing what happened to those who died before Jesus returned. They didn't know whether they were saved, if they're going to go to heaven or anything like that. So they had a question about what happened to those who died before Christ's return. There was also the question, obviously, of when Jesus would return. When was that going to happen and how could they prepare for his return? They were under very heavy persecution. And although they expected that, they didn't expect it to be as prolonged as what it was. And so they were questioning how that was going to play out as well. And then there was a section of people who began to speak against Paul and his authority. And so Paul had to address that as well. And all of this is addressed in the first Thessalonian letter. And uh, we're only looking at the very first chapter this morning. So let's just, sorry, this evening, you can tell I'm tired. Let's just pray as we get into this. Father God, thank you for your presence with us this evening. Thank you that we're able to just uh, proclaim your name through music and song. Thank you for the announcements that we've had. And Lord, we want to focus on your word now. I just ask that you give us open minds, open hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Help us to think about your word to us, Lord, what you're saying to us as individuals. And let us take that word on board and apply it to our lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So there's a few things that we're going to look at. And first and foremost, we're going to look at Paul's greeting, what he actually says at the very start of this letter. And First uh, Thessalonians 1, 1 says, Paul, Savanus, or Silas, as it is in the NIV, um, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And Paul has commenced this letter in the same manner that all letters were commenced in those times. If you imagine that letters aren't what we get these days, they were actually in a scroll. And uh, as Pastor Darrell said this morning, if you wanted to find out uh, who wrote the letter and it was done the way that we do it today, you can imagine someone unrolling the scroll all the way out to get to the end and go, oh, look at that, it's from Paul. So the order of the day was to actually have um, the authors of the letter at the very start. 
and they would, they would put their names up there first and uh, then they would put who they were actually writing to and then they'd give a general greeting and so that's classic the example of that here. And this is right across uh, all those who write. There was no, nothing set out separate to the church or anything like that. This was just the general way to write letters. And so Paul is writing to encourage this church. He wants to strengthen them in their faith and it could be one of the reasons he doesn't state that he's an apostle. Out of the 13 letters that are attributed to Paul, most of them, he states very, very quickly, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why he states that he's an apostle is, I have an authority. That is why I'm writing to you. You guys need to get into line. And so when we look at this letter, it's already set apart a little bit because he just says Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. He doesn't state that he's an apostle. He doesn't see a need to exert his authority as such. And so it's because he wants to encourage the church. He wants to build them up. He wants to see them grow. So he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is laying out not only the geographical location of the church in Thessalonica, he's also laying out where they are spiritually. He's saying that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a reason why he adds those two instead of just having it as one. And the way that Paul connects God the Father and Jesus indicates they are together the source of the church's life. You can't separate God and Jesus. And there were these teachings that were going through that were indicating that Jesus was not a deity. Jesus was not the Son of God. And I'm sure that you've heard that yourself. There's people who say Jesus is not the Son of God. He wasn't from the very beginning. There's people who knock on your door will tell you that. But Paul is saying right here in the New Testament that he is. And he's saying that the Father and the Son work together. And Paul is emphasizing that they're equal. And it may seem trivial, but the thing is, we've heard Jesus speak about his disciples and followers being in him as branches are in the vine. And I know I've spoken about this myself. And this is a life-giving union. You think about a branch that is grafted into another vine. That's where the life flow comes from. Once they're cut off, they die. And so when they're grafted in, it is from that branch sorry, the branch being grafted into the vine, it's from that vine that they get life and the life flows through them. And that's what's being expressed here. By knowing Jesus, we're grafted into him and by being grafted into him, we know God. And Jesus himself makes this connection quite clear in John 14, 6 and 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know me. That's so you do know him. And you have seen him. So Jesus is saying that if you know me, you know the Father. By being grafted into Jesus, we know God the Father. And in this simple greeting, Paul is pointing the Thessalonian new believers back to the foundation of their faith. They're securing God because of the faith they have declared in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have nothing to be concerned about. It's through God the Father and Jesus Christ that all believers obtain life, strength and stability. And then Paul moves on. If you haven't picked up, we're just going to work through the passage of Scripture. Paul moves on and says, grace to you and peace. And again, we've seen that there's nothing really significant about this, hey? But what Paul has done, he's actually brought two greetings together. And when he says grace, this is a Greek greeting. And when he says peace, who knows what shalom is? Shalom. It's the Jewish greeting. And so Paul has put a Greek and Jewish greeting together to say that you are united. 
You come from very different backgrounds. But in Jesus Christ, you are one. And he says grace and peace. And they would have picked that up straight away and known that he was saying under God's banner, there's no Jew, there's no Greek. You are one. And so Paul is emphasizing that unity. They're both equals, both valuable, both loved by God. And in that simple greeting, he is bringing unity to the church of the day. And then he moves on and he starts talking about some distinguishing marks of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayer, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is Paul is continuing the accepted method of writing of the day. He's identified the writers and recipients, he's given the greeting, and then it's customary to continue with an expression of thanksgiving or blessing or prayer or a wish to those who are receiving the letter. And so Paul follows the accepted method, but makes it something that uh, has a strong Christian message contained in it as well. They always thank God for the Thessalonian church. And it's interesting, Paul says, I thank God for all of you. Again, he's saying no one is of lesser value than anyone else. When the body of Christ comes together, even the most insignificant person has a role to play. And I've often found it's the weird, quirky people who are the ones that have the hugest impact for the kingdom. I think I've told you about my mate on the sunny coast. You know, you're driving along with him and suddenly he just rips into a park, jumps out and runs off to some bloke that's over in the park. And then he comes back, jumps in and says, no, it wasn't him and takes off. And it's like, what? He goes, oh, I thought God told me to talk to this guy about Jesus, but it wasn't him. He does it all the time. And I tell you what, he's bringing heaps of people into the kingdom because he's not afraid to do that. I'd never do that. If God told me to do it, I'd do it. But this guy does it all the time. It's incredible. And so it's those quirky people who can make a difference for us. And we need to get along with them. We need to accept that as the body of Christ, we're all different, but we all play a role. And Paul says that he prays continuously for them. And they remember before God the good things the church is doing. And there's something for us to learn in this as well. When we remember people, you know, sometimes you're walking along and someone comes to mind. Sometimes you just remember their face. Sometimes it's something they said. Sometimes it's their needs. And sometimes their name just comes to you. When that happens, whatever you're doing, just pause. Just take the time to pray for that person that you're thinking of. Bring them up before God. You know, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe God just makes these things happen. I think that he does it for a reason. And if we're more in tune with God and when we begin to think about, well, why am I thinking about this person? And you pray for them. There's going to be great impact in their life. There's going to be things that change as a result of you being willing to step out in faith and pray for that person when God brings them to mind. And that's what Paul and these companions are doing when they remember the Thessalonians. And what is it that he remembers about them? It's something that we take as being typical for the church, faith, love, and hope. And this is what Paul thinks of when he thinks of these new Christians in Thessalonian. But the thing is, this is the first time Paul's ever written this. And I know it's all throughout Scripture, I know it's all throughout his letters and things like that, but this is the first time that he mentions it about anyone. So it holds great significance to this particular church. It's what he sees in those people and in the church as a whole, but in each individual as well. And it's something that truly defined the church and captured Paul's attention. 
And the thing is, when we look at real faith, love and hope, we find that they're active. It's not just something we say. If you have these God-given attributes, then you're motivated into action. When we think about faith, faith is an assurance or a confidence or belief that God has acted in Christ to save his people. But that isn't all of it. When we act on that, we commit our lives and our ways to the Lord Jesus Christ. We accept him as our Lord and Saviour and declare that our lives are now his. And we'll be obedient to everything that he calls us to do. Would you agree? I hope so. And we're saying, Lord, all of me, every part of my life, every area is now yours for you to use for your glory. My old self is dead. I'm not going to pursue what I wanted anymore. I'm going to pursue you, Lord. And each and every day, I'm going to make myself available for you and your purposes. That's the response to faith. That's the response to understanding who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And then there's love. This is the love that Romans 5.5 5 speaks of and tells that this love has been poured out into our hearts by whom? By Holy Spirit. And it's a love that so graphically demonstrates the result of being restored into a right relationship with God. It's a love that from God's perspective, when we look at what God did for us, it's totally unreasonable. It's totally radical. It's a love that motivated God to send the Lord Jesus Christ to die in my place. And it's a love that we as his followers are called to show to others. We are to love as Christ loves us. And that means giving and caring for others, putting them before ourselves. That's how Jesus loved us. The type of love Paul is speaking of is other-centered. It's not self-centered. And he's saying that's what the Thessalonians have. That's what they do. And then the final word here is hope. Hope is first and foremost believing what God says about Jesus and his return. He's coming back. And all things will be made new and right when he does. It will be the literal outworking of Philippians 1.6, which says, He who began a good work will carry it on to completion. Faith, love and hope. Marks of a true church and a true believer. Just pause and think, how strong are those things in your life? How do people see those in my life? And then Paul moves on. And he thanks God for the Thessalonians because he knows that God has chosen them. They've been chosen by God. And I'm not going to go into this whole debate about predestination and all those types of things. But what is very clear is that God chose the church and the individuals that are in it. Think about our lives before knowing Christ. God didn't choose us because we were lovable. God didn't choose us because we had anything that we could offer him that was of greater value than what he already had. In fact, it was when we were at our worst that he chose to love us and to step into our world and to make a difference for us. God chose us because he loved us. It's a mystery I don't fully understand. It humbles me at times, it breaks me. But he loves me because he himself is love. And then Paul moves on to the gospel of God. 
And Paul could not speak about God's church without referring to the gospel. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And this is the natural point that has to come to this conversation. And in this letter, Paul speaks about the three stages that the Thessalonian church moved through in their faith journey. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Our gospel came to you. And everything that is written in Scripture is written for a reason. We need to pay attention. The gospel came to the Thessalonian church. And we heard all about it last week. It arrived in the hearts, the minds, and the mouths of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And God used them to proclaim the message of the gospel to these people who had never heard the gospel message in its entirety. And it says it was not only words, but by default that means it was also in words. And they went and spoke the gospel message to them. And our great commission is to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's so many people who think they don't need to do it. There's so many people who think it isn't their responsibility to tell others about Jesus. I personally don't think there's any clearer mandate in Scripture than proclaiming the gospel to those who don't know our Lord. I don't understand an attitude where we don't want to speak to our friends about Jesus. People say they're afraid of offending their friends if they were to tell them about Jesus, if they were to proclaim the gospel. And I, I don't understand why they wouldn't speak the very words that will save them from an eternity in hell. I, I don't get it. And if we are such that we're keeping the words of life from our friends, I have to ask, do you really love them? I mean, seriously. Surely you would be motivated to tell them about Jesus and to tell them that they can be saved. Because I seriously don't know anyone who would prefer to see someone they love excluded from the kingdom because they kept their mouth shut. He goes on and said it wasn't any words, but it's also in power. And it's hard to know the power that Paul is speaking of here, what he's referring to. And again, I'm not going to debate all the different powers and things like that. But it is God who prepares the hearts to receive the word. It's God who empowers the gospel message that is given. And perhaps there were miracles that were performed with that message. I don't know. Maybe that did occur. And Holy Spirit performed signs and wonders and things like that. And regardless of the specifics of this power, Paul is attributing the results to God. It wasn't Paul. God backed up the gospel message proclaimed with his power. And Paul is more than willing to give God the glory for that. And so also in power in the Holy Spirit. All that occurred in Thessalonica is a result of Holy Spirit. It's because of Holy Spirit that Paul didn't have to worry about the message he brought. It is Holy Spirit who empowers the words that we speak, however weak, however hesitantly, even if we're bold. It is still Holy Spirit that empowers the message. It is Holy Spirit that illuminates the truth of what is said to the lost. 
as Holy Spirit who gives the correct promptings and the words to speak in each and every situation. As Holy Spirit who drives each and every message home in power. So those who hear will respond by repenting, by seeking forgiveness and then live by faith and obedience. And it comes with deep conviction. This is something that should be happening in our churches today. Conviction comes from Holy Spirit. And it's a realisation of guilt, my guilt, before a holy, righteous God. It's seeing Him in all His splendour, majesty and power and realising that even my greatest achievements, the greatest things I've done, are filthy in comparison to Him. And conviction should drive me to my knees before God. It's a precursor to true repentance. And it's about me acknowledging my need of a saviour. And Paul goes on to say about this church that they welcomed the message. They received the word in much affliction, Paul says in verse 6. And he spoke about the way they brought the message to the Thessalonians. And now he's going to speak about how they received it in much affliction. And there's been opposition to those who proclaimed the gospel in this area. Think about Paul and Silas and Timothy being kicked out in Acts 17. And those who receive the message face similar opposition and persecution. And it seems that the Thessalonians were aware of the suffering that they were facing, but they received the message of Jesus Christ anyway. They chose to follow him. They chose to accept him as their Lord and Saviour. And they did so willingly. And this fact is emphasised more in the NIV translation, which says they welcomed this word instead of what it says in the ESV, where, it's, where it says they received it. And they received it with the joy of Holy Spirit. And here's the second mention of Holy Spirit in as many verses. The same Holy Spirit that was at work in Paul, Silas and Timothy to empower the words that they proclaimed and spoke is the same Holy Spirit who gave joy to those who received the message. Do you remember the first time you made a commitment to Christ? I do. I went back to Presbyterian Church over at Woody Point, guy who was an old uh, youth leader there. Um, possibly thought I was a lost cause. Praise God, he prayed for me continuously. And, and I went to him and I hesitantly said, I was just wondering if you would tell me how to give my life to Christ. And his face lit up. He was so excited. He took me out in the back room and uh, we prayed there. And I went outside and it was pouring rain. I've got to tell you, it was the most incredible time for me. Everything was just awesome. I was so overjoyed. I was excited. I was like, wow, what does this mean? What is God going to do for me? I realized even then that my, the way I was thinking was very different to how I had been. And I've got to tell you, I, I was overjoyed. I just, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. It was just an incredible thing. Have you experienced that? The only other time I experienced something similar is when I know of someone who is so totally lost and I think, Lord, you need to reach this guy. I don't know how you're going to do it. And when those people come to faith, I mean, I get so joyful. I just feel like I'm going to explode. It's just incredible. And, and, and I'm so overjoyed to, to hear about how they've given their life to Christ. There was this one guy. He, he, oh, he was the black sheep of the family. Everyone else was following Christ and doing the right thing. And he just rebelled. And um, I was back when I was 19 and we were delivering pizzas when I think they were 24 bucks for a family pizza or something. We used to make money delivering pizzas back then. But 
I used to deliver pizzas and this guy comes staggering out, stoned out of his head, blind, drunk, whatever. And he'd always laugh that it was Charlie that was out there. He's like, oh, I suppose you tell mum and dad about this. The crazy thing is this kid, as much as he rebelled against his mother and father, he stuck true to the one thing his parents said, you will be home for Sunday lunch. Always went home for Sunday lunch. And Sunday lunch, they sat around the table and they shared a little about what was going on in their lives, said grace and ate together. And this guy... I know his mum was a lovely woman of God, her dad was as well. And, and they just despaired over this boy. They didn't know what they could possibly do. And he's sitting down there, they said their grace, and uh, he's just about to start eating. He said, oh, by the way, mum, dad, I gave my life to Christ, starts eating. His mother screamed. This is a reserved lady. This is a lady who, you know, doesn't do much at all. She just screamed. She couldn't believe it. She raced around the table, gave him a hug, and he's like, mum, mum, come on, I want to eat. <laughs> No big deal for him. But there's this joy that just wells up. And, and you can't explain it. It's something that the Holy Spirit gives you. And, and knowing that this guy has come into the kingdom, he's since served overseas in a number of places, he's doing awesome things, dearly love him, he's a great brother. But when someone gives their life to Jesus, we're told the angels rejoice in heaven. I've no doubt that God does too. And I've got to tell you, I do as well. It, it's, it's just a feeling that can't be contained. And so this is the joy that these guys received. They received Holy Spirit and it didn't matter what was happening to them. It didn't matter that they were being persecuted. It didn't matter that they could be thrown in jail. They were just overjoyed. Outward circumstances didn't affect their inward feelings of being saved, of having their future secured in Christ. And then Paul says that they became imitators of them and the Lord. Sounds a little pretentious really, hey, when you think about it. But it's more a declaration of the radical change that had happened in these new believers' lives. Once they'd given their lives to Jesus Christ, they became so much more like the three who were ministering to them than their former selves. It was a huge change. And we think about what is being said here too. It isn't about Paul puffing himself up. But what he's saying is that they have chosen to live for Jesus and they're walking in his ways, focused on him. And when you think about Paul, Silas and Timothy, they were so dedicated to the Lord. They were following the way that Jesus would have them to go. So it's only natural that other believers that come in line will also be walking in the same way. So they will appear similar to Paul, Silas and Timothy. And they may appear to be imitators of Paul, Silas and Timothy, but because those guys were so switched on, they were all looking like Jesus anyway and becoming more and more like him each and every day. The author and perfecter of their faith. They were following the example of Paul, but they were following the example of Christ as well. And as a result, Scripture tells us here, they became a model to all believers. The transformation that took place was so radical and so convincing that there were more people brought into the kingdom because of their new commitment and the outworking of that faith. They had it right. And regardless of the opposition they were facing, the inner joy and peace was clearly evident. The gospel message that Paul and co. brought was marked by truth, conviction and power. And those receiving the message are also marked with joy, courage and obedience. The power of the gospel has changed them. And as a result... The message sounded forth from them. The word sounded here is translated from a word that means to sound, ring, peal or boom. And it's something that is heard far and wide. And all the, invita 
Evidence indicates that these new believers were not holding back in telling others about what Jesus has done for them. They weren't holding back about proclaiming the message of God. And it's the same word that we get our word echo from. And we all know that echoes are usually as a result of a fairly large noise or something that happens in a fairly quiet space and it's very easily heard and it's repeated back continuously. And Paul is saying that the Thessalonians were making a loud or a lot of noise about the message they had received. And it was reverberating all through the country. And so much so that their faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. Can you imagine what that would be like? You imagine if we went on a mission trip somewhere and we proclaimed the gospel there and people came to faith anywhere in the world. You pick it. And we came back here to Sunnybank and when we arrived back, all these people started saying, have you heard what's happened in this place? And that's the place you've just been to. Because that's what this is talking about. The impact of the gospel was so great and the transformation so incredible that people were saying something is going on in Thessalonica. Think about the lives that these guys lived. They used to go and worship in other temples. They used to bow down to other idols and things like that. They used to sleep with the temple prostitutes. And so they stopped all that. So the physical outworking was, well, these guys aren't doing. So what they were saying was backed up by how they were living. And it was so radically different that people were saying, you know, we are convinced that something has happened in this place. We don't understand it, but it is so different to what it was before. And these guys are living a life so fundamentally changed that we know something big has happened. And Paul doesn't need to say anything. Others are coming to him and saying, wow, can you believe what is happening there? Their faith is becoming known way beyond Greece. And you know what? For those of you who've spent any time with me, you know that I hound you about telling good news stories about God. I, I just, I love hearing them for starters. I just love hearing about what God is doing in individual lives. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It's just God being active because our God is alive. Our God is doing things each and every day. We just fail to notice it. And I think if we spent some time each and every night saying, well, God, I'm just going to think of five things you've done for me tonight. The first few months is going to be really hard for you. But if you thought about five things that God had done for you each and every night, after a while, you'll see that God's hand is just so active. And you'll begin to praise him for the incredible things that he does in, through and around you. And that's what these guys are doing. They can't stop talking about the good things that Jesus does. They speak initially about the transformation in their lives when they came to give their life to Jesus. But then they talk about the ongoing things that God is doing. When they stop someone and speak to them in the street about the great things that God has done and they give their life to Christ, they're going to tell someone else about that. They're going to talk about the power of Holy Spirit. And now they have this hope, they have this security that they never had before. And for each of us, it's about valuing the things of God above everything else and living out what we believe. And that's what these guys were doing. And then we come to the last few verses, verses 9 and 10. And it says, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These two verses are the outworking of what we read back in verse 3. The work of faith that they were proclaimed as having 
is this turning away from idols. The labour of love is serving the true God and being totally obedient to him, not holding any of themselves back, but submitting totally to him. And the steadfastness of hope is their belief in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They know it for sure. They stand upon that conviction and they proclaim that Jesus is returning. And the marks of this church in Thessalonica was truly outstanding. It was faith, love and hope. And it was those marks that people looked on and said, these guys have got something that I need. These guys understand what it is like to be sold out and to live for Jesus. So I don't have any great challenge for you tonight. But I want you to think about faith, love and hope. Those three words encompass so much that we need to do in our lives. And I'm not getting it right. I wish I was. I wish I could say, guys, follow me. But I don't love people the way I do. You know, there's some people who rub me the wrong way. And I don't always express my faith the way they should. I'm not sure if I've told you the story about when I visited Garden City a couple of years ago and I was walking along and there was a guy in a wheelchair coming towards me and God said, I want you to stop him and pray for him. And I said, God, are you nuts? I mean, come on. I didn't do it. And I regret that each and every day. I mean, I don't have an expectation that I would have gone and prayed for that guy and he would have got up and walked because the most important thing for us is not the result of what God calls us to do. The most important thing is to be obedient to him. First and foremost, we must be obedient to God and call on his life. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to have the worship team back up. We'll close in a song. If you want prayer, please come forward. I'm more than happy to pray with people. I love doing that. I'd like to encourage you to think about what we've read this evening and to reread it. Have another look at it. See what God is saying to you as an individual and think again about faith, love and hope and how they should impact your lives. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your presence with us this evening. I thank you for your love that you pour out upon us so freely. And Lord, that's the same love that you call us to express to others. And Lord, I want to start off first and foremost by asking for your forgiveness because I know I don't love people the way that you've called me to. My love is conditional and it shouldn't be. And Lord, I pray for us as a people of God that we will be seen eventually like the church at Thessalonica. The people will look at us, they will see our faith, they will see our love, they will see our hope, and they will be so moved that they will want to know more about you, that they'll be brought into your kingdom as a result of Holy Spirit working in through and around us. And Lord, more than anything, I pray for unity amongst us. I pray that we will just be like that church where we don't have any barriers between us through culture, race, status, or anything else, Lord. I pray that we'll realize how valuable each and every one of us are to the body of Christ, and that each and every one of us have a role to play, and that, Father, as your people we will help each other realize what that is and we will encourage and uplift and strengthen each other to live their lives for you so that the full number can be brought into your kingdom father give us a boldness when we proclaim your word give us a boldness to talk about the good things that you do in our lives and father let us start that this week i ask let us be more determined to tell our friends about you 
Father, I'm sure none of us want to see them perish. None of us want to see them separated from you forever. So Lord, help us put away our reservations and to focus fully upon you and the message that you've given us to proclaim, just as Paul, Silas and Timothy did, Lord, and that church in Thessalonica did as well. So Father, we submit to you. We love you. We ask you to take us and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.